Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real-life sisters who geek out on historical drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on historical drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michelle Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. In this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, we're talking about season two of Bridgerton and the introduction of the Sharma family in the glittery romantic period drama series from Shonda Rhimes Shondaland and creator Chris Van Dusen. Bridgerton is inspired by Julia Quinn's best-selling novels set in Regency London's high society or the Ton, where seduction, secrets, and scandal riddle the social rules inside the ballrooms, palaces, and beyond in the quest for making a suitable marriage. Our guest for today's conversation is Derber Ghosh. Derber Ghosh is professor of history at Cornell University and the author of Sex and the Family in Colonial India, The Making of Empire, published by Cambridge University Press in 2006. She also wrote Gentlemanly Terrorists, Political Violence and the Colonial State in India, 1919 to 1947, also published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. And with Dane Kennedy, she is co-editor of Decentering Empire, Britain, India, and the Transcolonial World, published by Orient Longman in 2006. Her research has focused on gender, culture, law, archives, and colonial governance in British India. In connection with this research, she has taught courses on modern South Asia, the British Empire, and colonialism. Welcome to Colonial. <laughs> this is going to be Colonial History with the Boston Sisters to talk about <laughs> Bridgerton and, um, and India and Empire and Regency England. So thank you so much, Derba, for joining us today on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is really going to be fun. It's our pleasure. Now you did email us and said you, you two did your homework. And yes, we did, because much of the information I have or what I know about India takes place in the 20th century with independence and the, the last Viceroy, Lord Mountbatten and, and Nehru and Pakistan, the establishment of Pakistan and India. But you have been researching and writing about British colonial history in India. What got you interested in making that your area of expertise? That's such a great question to start with. Well, I think I'll start by saying I'm of South Asian descent and I grew up entirely in the United States or almost entirely in the United States. Um, and I think growing up, I heard a lot of stories from my parents, certainly. And then we visited India uh, pretty often when I was a kid. And so I think to me, the history of India was something that I was always interested in. But when I was growing up, there wasn't a lot of training in the history of India, certainly not in elementary school or high school. Um, and then when I got to college, I think I was really interested in the colonial part of it. And maybe I'll, I'll put it that way. 
I think it's strange, even weird, uh, that European empires um, traveled, explored to these other places and then thought, hey, we're gonna put a flag up here and we're gonna establish a settlement and then we're gonna establish an outpost and then we're gonna establish a colony. And so I think my initial interest in India developed into an interest in colonialism and really thinking about the dynamics of colonialism. How did we come to have vast parts of the world colonized by European empires in the 19th and 20th centuries? And then what effect did that have on people living under the conditions of colonialism? So I think that's the kind of good intellectual answer. I will also say I was a very recalcitrant child and I probably didn't believe anything my parents said. So I think in some ways um, becoming a historian is a way of finding out if the things they told me were true. Uh, and I think what I've learned over the years is it's complicated and everybody has their own truth and it's really important to attend to the range of ways in which we understand the past. Is Ghosh your family name? It is, it is, and, yeah. And what region? It's from Bengal. And actually it's so interesting because it's such a common last name in Bengal. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's incredibly common. And of course there's some very famous people with the last name Ghosh, none of whom I'm related to. Um, it's like Smith, I would say, or Jones, but it is, um, it is from the region of Eastern India that comprises uh, West Bengal in India. Uh, although my parents were born in what is now um, the nation of Bangladesh. So let's talk about the East India Company. What is their role in this history? Because I, you thought it was part of the trade and then all of a sudden they're controlling this whole region. Tell us more about that history and that story. That's a, I mean, I think that's one of the amazing stories about uh, modern capitalism, right? The East India Company is a joint stock trading company and it is chartered by the queen in, in 1600. And the charter basically specifies that the East India Company is a company that will go out to different parts of Asia, um, the East Indies, and bring back products. And it has a monopoly or right to then sell those products in England. And that charter actually is in place. It's renewed multiple times under multiple conditions, um, but it's basically in place until 1833. So it's, a, kind of 200 plus years of a, a history of a trading company. I think as trading companies go, of course, as they trade for the longer that they trade, they have an army, they develop settlements, um, and then they become embroiled in uh, local affairs. A lot of these local affairs have to do over politics, over territory. And as the East India Company begins to defend its commercial interests, it's obviously drawn into a set of military struggles, a lot of which happened in the 18th century. Um, probably American listeners know about the French and Indian Wars, right? What the East India Company, what in India would be known as the Seven Years' War. And of course, the fact that the British win over the French and their allies in that war results in territories in India, French territories in India being granted to the East India Company. So the East India Company, I would say by the, you know, by the middle of the 18th century, 
it acts as a kind of representative to run the territories of the, the Indian subcontinent, although it is not the British crown. It's not, it's not the British government just yet. That doesn't happen until 1858. Um, and one thing I'll just say, I'm not making a plug, but the East India Company has a website, right? Because they're selling things, um, products that are considered Asian, um, tea, coffee, uh, various products under the East India Company logo. So it's been revived, um, I think inspired by its remit from the 17th century, which was that they brought all these goods that Europeans had never experienced, textiles in the shape of silks, muslins, uh, calico, tea for sure, right? Opium, maybe that was smuggling, I'm not sure that was approved, but uh, tea, spices, and so on. Um, but I mean, one thing I think that when we talk about colonialism, the East India Company is actually in India for over a hundred years, trading relatively peacefully while local rulers are governing and administering the territories that are on the Indian subcontinent. It's not really until the latter part of the 18th century that this becomes uh, a much more, I would say, embedded territorial expansion. And this question may be speculative, but I, I always expand on characters when I see these stories. Like, how would what what do you see as the impact of that on the Sharma family, or as a backdrop for yeah. the Sharmas and Bridgerton? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, so I mean, I'll start by saying I like the show, right? And I like the show. Uh, I think for the reasons that a lot of viewers like the program, which is that. Um, it brings to light that that Indians are engaging with the British in multiple ways. And so one of the plot points, which is not quite true or wouldn't have been true, is um, Mr. Sharma, who we, we never learn what his first name is, but Mr. Sharma, uh, Lady Mary's, Lady Mary Sharma's husband is an Indian clerk, right? And in that context, clerk wouldn't have been it's not the same thing as a clerk now. We don't really use clerk in common parlance, but a clerk would have been like what would, would have been called a writer or somebody who would have uh, dealt with correspondence or, or been, been a kind of inter, intermediary between a British official or British trader and maybe Indian merchants and bankers, right? So an Indian clerk would have been somebody who would, would have been writing, would have had good penmanship, would have been writing out documents. Um, it's a, I would call it a middle management position, right? So, um, and so, you know, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting about the, and we learn about it through the season, right? So I think somewhere around season five. No, episode five. Episode five, sorry, season two, episode five. No, maybe a little bit earlier. We learn that Mr. Sharma works for an Indian royal household. Right, so kind of late in the season, we learn it. And that's a kind of important detail because there are big elite households that are, or royal families, princely states is what they're called, who are engaging with the British throughout this period. And some of them are traveling to Europe. And so the likelihood that they had someone like Mr. Sharma traveling with them uh, is possible, right? Is it possible that they would have had a relationship with somebody in England like Lady Mary? Possible, 
I'm not sure it's likely. We certainly haven't heard about it. Doesn't mean it didn't happen, but a little unlikely. Um, it's very unlikely they would have been named Sharma, though, right? And in that sense, um, the father is very important, right? So if there are very few cases of Indian fathers and British mothers for the 18th century, right? And so one way to say it is, it's not that they don't exist, it's that there's very little archival evidence for them, which suggests to me that the names were changed yes. to reflect a more European parentage, right? Um, so it's a way in which the names would have whitewashed their biological parent, their bio biological ancestry. So I think the way that I would, um, you know, what I think about the East, India Company's relationship is there are in fact Indians in Britain starting in the 18th century because of the East India Company. They're not all likely to be clerks like Mr. Sharma is reputed to have been. A lot of them would have been sailors or Lashkars, people coming off the East India Company boats, living probably in the Docklands, right, in London. Um, those people certainly would have never been circulating in the in the kind of ballrooms that we see in Bridgerton. So I think that's a, that's a stretch, um, but it's an interesting stretch, right? Because the, it resulted Lady Mary then going back to India with him, right? Yes. And deciding that she doesn't wanna be uh, a member of the Sheffield family anymore, right? And of course, in the, in the program later on in the season, we, we see Lady Mary meeting her parents again after she flees to India, which I think, which I think gives you a sense of how fraught some of these racial dynamics are. Yeah, and even more so now that you brought this up, because uh, I, I, I see Bridgerton as a what if scenario. You know, it's a fantasy of Regency England where people of all races can be part of this world, the tone and high society. And you know, in some ways, the success of it were, are the cultural references is having brown and black people in this world so that now you have more people being drawn to historical dramas like this and this period um, and building on that audience with some, you know, exact moments of historical accuracy, maybe a tiny bit. <laughs> You've given us one example of, I see where you're like me, when I look at historical drama, I'm some, I'm looking at it, enjoying it, and then I'm Googling or looking at the same time. Are there other examples that you could cite where you were like, yeah, I'm really enjoying this. And then, wait a minute, I remember this from my research. And then <laughs> looking it up or, or saying, looking at it from your historian's perspective. You know, um, I think the thing that is very accurate is that Kate Sharma's mother is never uh, named in the season, right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, I know we think a lot about blended families, right? And of course, part of the key plot in Bridgerton is the marriage plot, who's going to marry whom, right? And in that way, I think that there's, I can imagine this is very appealing to many different kinds of audiences, but particularly South Asian audiences where the marriage plot is really, really um prevalent in how we think about families and how families reproduce themselves and so on. So, um, you know, effectively the Sharmas, the three women in the, the, the program are uh, a blended family. Where Mary Sharma 
runs off with Mr. Sharma, the clerk. They, they have Edwina, the younger sister, together. But part of the story is that Kate is the daughter of a previous marriage, right? And so Kate and Edwina are biologically at least half sisters, right? right but in yeah. but in the in that moment, the idea of half sisters wouldn't have been so much a part of the parlance because in the 18th century, people did die young. People died in childbirth. So the likelihood that a woman would marry somebody who had children before is actually a little bit higher, right? Especially for these colonial families. So for British officials who live in India, uh, especially the wealthier or more elite ones, um, they do have relationships in India with children that, that are called quote unquote natural children, right? And those children are often considered and I don't love this word. I don't think, you know, I wouldn't, I use it with caution, illegitimate because they're not married to the mothers, right? So those children, of course, coexist with the children that are born of the more appropriately white wife in Europe, right? But, um, but these children are often, are not often, sometimes brought from India to be educated in Britain. Uh, and their mother then is left behind, right? The mother then is dispossessed of her child or her children, right? In this story, we never hear what Kate, what happened to Kate Sharma's mother. All we know is that Mr. Sharma dies and this throws the family, the, the three women, you know, makes them uh, vulnerable, right? They don't now have prospects because the father has died. So at some level, it's a story about how important patriarchs are in the 18th century, right? Yes. And this season, of course, focuses very much on Anthony Bridgerton. So, and a lot of it is that his father dies and he becomes the patriarch of this family. So there's a, <clears throat> there's kind of two strands of patriarch, patriarchal behavior and establishing those patriarchal lines going on, right? Um, Mr. Sharma in India and also Anthony Bridgerton in, in England. But a lot of this depends on the first Mrs. Sharma, we never know who she is, going missing, right? And the fact that she's absent is what in the plot makes Kate independent. It makes Kate determined. It makes Kate stubborn, right? Um, it makes Kate determined never to be dependent on a man, right? Which is often a plot in romance novels, right? Yes. Um, right, it's true, it's true in Pride and Prejudice. I mean, it's true in a lot of these stories, but um, I think that part is really, to me, interestingly accurate, right? That there's this, that Kate's mother is never named, which is what would have been the case in the 18th and 19th century. And often the fact that they're not named in the documents, historians have said, well, they didn't really exist or there weren't that many of them or, um, they didn't really matter. And I, I think we should be thinking about why they're never named, right? Because right. that is a form of erasure, right? That's a form of um, making a family more white, right? And making it more patriarchal, right? That So that the family is determined by the father rather than by the mother. But what we do have are her bracelets. We do have the bracelets, right? <laughs> we have the bracelets. And I thought that was, again, such a fat, I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up because I took a note about it because the bracelets are a classic motif in Bombay films, right? The breaking of the bracelets when somebody, somebody's marriage falls apart or there's been a betrayal or something. And so that she gets these bracelets from her mother are so important, right? Um, 
and that she's wearing them at the wedding, right? There's this moment where, right, Kate tries to give them to Edwina, Edwina says no, right? And they're yours, right? And that's, you know, because there's also a little bit of a, um, you know, bit about Kate and Lady, the mother Mary's relationship to Kate, right? And you're not my real mother and so on. And so I thought that was important as part of the plot. And, and I imagine, you know, again, I imagine um, in the context of the blended families that would have existed, I can imagine that these are the kinds of dynamics that would have shaped how they interacted with one another. And based on what you just said, Mary, I guess, didn't have bracelets. Mary wouldn't have had bracelets though, right? Right, because she was English, she wouldn't have had bracelets. Yeah. Sean and I have noticed um, quite a bit of online conversation about actual cultural references like the bracelets, like what uh, fabrics and patterns oh. are used. Uh, we also have uh, Kate actually expressing her dislike of the pitiful excuse for tea, the English so adore. Yeah, and Indians were having, cheering, I think, about that. Yeah, and people are having a really good time like pointing out, oh, this is actually from the culture. For folks who haven't been following those threads and aren't familiar, could you also talk about what are some other references to Indian culture, whether of that time or our own time, since Bridgerton does make use of contemporary culture as well in the stories that people might look for as they probably will now go back and rewatch it if, or watch it. Yeah. So I think one of the things that a lot of the social media and commentary, especially coming out of South Asia has been very critical of is um, that in the, in the season, Kate and Edwina um, refer to their mother and father as Amma and Appa, which are the Tamil terms for mother and father, right? Um, but then when Edwina uh, refers to Kate, her older sister, she calls her Didi, which is a North Indian term for older sister, right? And Didi is often used very much as um, a term of respect, right? So it's not only that you're the older sister, it's that you have a higher status. I don't, I think that would be the right way to say it. So for what, for instance, when I go to um, India to work in an archive, right? You could have somebody who's a, an archive or library. You could have somebody who's much older than I am, who's bringing me materials or books and they would call me Bibi, right? Which I find hard, right? Because they're not older than I am, but um, but it is a way to mark status, right? Or mark um, how, some, how someone is revered. So I think this disjointedness, right? About referring to the mother and father using a, a Tamil term, which is from Southern India, Didi, which is from Northern India. And then Kate refers to Edwina's bone, which is sister, or in Hindi, it would be Bahan. You know, I don't know that anybody calls their sister that, but. So I think there's some uh, unhappiness about that, right? About the inconsistency, right? Um, just to play with the counterfactual, I can imagine that if the makers of Bridgerton chose one region that they were gonna focus on, that people in the other region would find that, like, why didn't they use my region, right? So, uh, yeah, yeah. right? So I, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing they know and I'm guessing they made some kind of calculation 
Um, there's a reference in episode, I, I want to say it's in episode three, where Edwina is talking to, to Anthony Bridgerton, to the Viscount, and she says, have you read Galib, who is an Urdu poet and writer, who wasn't alive in this period? And so there's been a lot of um, teeth gnashing about that mistake. And that feels like a Wikipedia mistake, like they kind of look that up. That's not that hard. Um, there's some other things, you know, I think there's some cynicism about the idea that Kate would know how to ride a horse or that she would know how to hunt. And late in the season, you know, when, when she goes on the hunt with, with Anthony Bridgerton, she explains, that's when she explains that her father worked for a royal household and that she was allowed to do these things. Um, I haven't researched hunting culture, right? So I, I wouldn't, but I put that in the category of things that maybe somebody should research. I think it's entirely plausible if she was the daughter of the Indian clerk and she was the Indian daughter, right? That there was no anxiety about letting her hunt with the men, right? There would have been anxiety about a white woman doing that with the men in India, but there probably wouldn't have been if she was the daughter of this clerk, right? So I thought that that was a kind of interesting, um, I don't know if it's a historical tweak. I thought it was a kind of interesting way that they raised the issue about, well, this could be true, right? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and on, on that issue, on that particular, does she write, you know, could she have known how to ride a horse and hunt? I, I kind of think when you think that she's the daughter of the first wife, yeah, I think it's possible. I don't think Edwina would have been permitted to do that, given that she was Mary's daughter. And I think in the program, you know, that's pretty consistent. So um, there's some other things, you know, I think uh, there's the moment where she's putting coconut oil in, in Edwina's hair, which I yes. think is a very nice moment. And I think it speaks um, to a different culture than I think we were uh, more familiar with, where I think women do touch each other in those ways in terms of, you know, running oil through the hair, doing your friend's hair. I mean, um, I think we can all remember a time when we were younger and our friends would braid our hair or whatever. And I think that that's a kind of nice moment. And then of course, there's the moment before the big wedding day where they spread haldi or turmeric on um, Edwina's arms and face. And, uh, you know, I love that turmeric has become this like anti-inflammatory herbal <laughs> remedy for yes, everything. everything. <laughs> It I is put like it in everything. Yeah, because <laughs> it is a kind of miracle. Um, I guess it's a root. It's not an herb, right? It's a root. So, um, you know, I can totally imagine that the turmeric facial, as it's being called, would be the, th the kind of facial you would want the day before you got married. But it is seen to be a ritual that is a kind of blessing. And, uh, and of course, in South Asia, weddings take days. And this would have happened probably a day or two before the marriage as a way for the women in your family to spend that last kind of intimate time with you before you went off to the household of your husband. And it would have been the moment where um, I think it would, would have been about imparting knowledge, imparting love, right? Imparting uh, lots of things, but a real moment of intimacy as it is, as it is I think, in, in Bridgerton. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that those are the kind of nice moments, right. Where those rituals are brought forward.
So um, we've been um, seeing quite a bit of uh, conversation about skin color, which is in our own Black community also uh, a big conversation. Um, and even Shonda Rhimes references how important it was that they cast women who were darker skinned in those roles. So what do you see as the significance of casting darker skinned women in Bridgerton in the Sharma family uh, for folks, particularly South Asian folks who are watching this series? Well, I think it's huge. I mean, so I have a lot of thoughts about this. So maybe let me start by not answering your question, then I'll answer your question. So I think the big thing, and I think this is where we really have to take, um, give a lot of applause to Shonda Rhimes and Shonda Land and the producers of the program in the sense that I think we have become accustomed to assuming that everybody in Regency England or everybody in those historical adaptations and reenactments were white, right? right because we've yeah. seen it on TV, we start to think everybody looked white, right? Or everybody looked like Daphne did last season, like thin, delicate, very fair, um, and so on, right? And so I think... I think one of the interesting things about the casting of dark-skinned actresses is that it, it really highlights the fact that we've become accustomed to thinking of beauty as particularly white and that a lot of those ideas are constructed and cultivated by televisual narratives yes. about what life, wealthy life, wealthy elite life looked like in the past. Yeah, especially right? wealthy elite life. Yeah, so if we if if that's what we've had in our heads, right? Mm -hmm. Then I think we internalize that everything else a didn't exist and isn't very beautiful. And so I think that this is a kind of this is a critique of all the other televisual adaptations that never had black and brown and asian people in it, right? Yes. Even though we know that there were black and brown and asian people in 18th century England, right? Right. So I would separate the history from the televisual adaptations, right? Mm -hmm. And I would say that those televisual adaptations um, perpetuated a certain version of whiteness. So that's the way I'm not going to answer your question. But the way I am going to answer your question is, I think it's fantastic that they're dark skinned. And of course, um, I think the, the really important uh, part of that is that I think it speaks to audiences that are global. And that I think it's very clear from the research being done in gender studies and colonial studies that, that under European colonialism, uh, white skin or pale skin became uh, equated not, not only with beauty, but with education and refinement and being civilized. And that certain kinds of bodily comportment became very, very important. And I think that that's true in South Asia I think it's true in South Africa. I think it's true in lots of places in, you know, in black communities across the, the diaspora. So I think it's really great that they, that um, both of the heroines, you know, and of course Edwina gets crowned the diamond, right? By the queen. Yes, yes. I think the, the, diamond. Cast, the diamond, right? And I think the casting of Queen Charlotte uh, and Lady Danbury, again, just brilliant. Right, brilliant, brilliant, really, right? Um, I think those are really important uh, 
important forms of critique of what we used to think, right? I will just say, you know, I have a 17 year old daughter and uh, she's watched it and I've watched a bit. I've, I've actually watched the second time parts of it with her and she, it struck her, the hair and the skin was really empowering for her, right? Because, you know, that it's not really like, those are not the figures that are heroines, but the thing that she said that was, uh, and I hadn't really realized it. She said, you know, um, South Asian women have a shape for their face and the square jaw. And those women have a square jaw like I do. And that's really nice to see, right? And I think if you can see yourself on TV, right? You can imagine all kinds of possibilities, which I think are otherwise closed off. Um, so I, I think it's, it, I don't know if, if the makers of the program thought actively about how they were gonna critique all the other televisual narratives, right? But certainly the makers of Down and Abbey should be, you know, thinking again about their casting, right? And, you know, and I think on that front, it's very, it's very effective. We've had a conversation with folks who are um, working with PBS Masterpiece, and they are being very intentional about looking for opportunities to cast mm. black and brown actors, and also the writers and directors, you know, behind the scenes as well as in front of the camera, because as you said, for young people to see their possibilities, they have to see themselves. And the other thing that's beautiful is it, it's actually helping us reclaim history because if you, I mean, there's so much now even on Instagram of people showing images of various people of color, indigenous folks, et cetera, in histor various historical times. So it, it was like growing up for me, it was like, did we have any history at all? Did we exist yeah. at all? Yeah. But now we're finding, oh yes, it's just that we, we weren't shown that reality. Yeah, you said that great, reclaiming history, but it's that we weren't shown that reality, right? Yeah. And because yeah. there wasn't evidence of it, people said, well, it didn't happen that way. Or, you know, and I think that that's a real mistake. So, yeah. You know, even what you said about the East India Company took me back to reading um, one of Alcott's books called, well, two, Eight Cousins and Rose in Bloom, where the family. The Campbell family actually is involved in trade in Asia. And it made me wonder, well, did the US also have a, some version of East India company type relationships in Asia? Yeah, we're learning a lot from historical drama these days. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks yes. to Netflix and other, uh, other outlets. Well, since you're in the Boston sisters, you must know there's like a, East India Company Street in Boston, right? Yeah. Do you know about this? It's where the ships from the, the East Queen of Wood. I used to go there once a month for my job. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> so you do know. So um, actually, you know, the Peabody Essex Museum has a lot of material about this trade uh, between the U.S. and India. And some of you probably remember your U.S. history. I don't remember it. So if I get this wrong, you should tell me. But 
um, the tea that comes from India is sold in the United States and the 13 colonies, right? And um, I know that the Boston Tea Party kind of narrative we all learned in school has been debunked, but, um, but after the American Revolution, uh, the United States actually is a big uh, consumer of those Indian goods. And, uh, and I will just say, I haven't written about it, but I, I uh, found it in my research. In the 18th century, when the Americans rebel against Britain, the merchants, the East India Company merchants that are in India kind of are thinking, hey, we should do this because this monopoly is not a great deal for us. And so there's a little bit of kind of unrest, but of course the um, India never becomes a settler colony in the way that the 13 colonies of the United States do. And in, um, and you know, I would say that move fizzles. And in fact, the East India Company and the British Parliament get much more involved in running India as a result of what happens in the United States. But that trade between the United States and Asia does carry on. And, and there's some interesting, um, I mean, I think that that's the, that I think appears in Bridgerton in various forms, right? The, the goods that they're using in the house. Right, yeah. Right, there's the, you know, there's the carpets and the clothing everyone's talked about, but there's a couple of, um, there's a couple of things in the house that really make it clear that, you know, they're, they're obviously big consumers of Asian goods. So this whole idea of globalization is not new. No, absolutely not. No, not at all. No, I, I think actually getting to that, I mean, it's not at all new. I think what's interesting is in the recent, you know, the, the past few uh, televisual adaptations, and I'm thinking of, um, I want to say it's a Pride and Prejudice that was just done. Uh, actually, Howard's End was just refilmed, right? With, um, and in it, you see them wearing shawls like women wear in India. And, you know, I read some blog posts that said, well, would, it, would British women really have worn those shawls? And the answer is yes, they would have, because those shawls are being sold in Britain. So I think actually the globalization is a very important feature of what's shown in, in Bridgerton. And there's a lot been said about Bridgerton, about how bright the dresses are, right? They seem to be made of Indian saris or Indian textiles. That would have probably been the case in that period that Indian textiles were being used to make the dresses that were worn at these balls and social gatherings. So I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. I think that that globalization is a very important feature of the way that they live. Um, I'm not sure, you know, I think we often think of globalization as a form of cultural, uh, what's the word? Cultural exploitation sympathy. or <laughs> well, we do think of it as exploitation, but I mean, I always think of you know, appropriation, oh. appropriation like chai latte, right? Like, yeah, sure, you know, but Indians don't call it a chai latte, it's just chai, right? right. And, yeah, and I think that that you know, some people I think drink chai and think that they're drinking something that's an Indian product. I'm not sure that Indians would recognize it as an Indian product, right? But that is a kind of product of globalization, right? Um, so I think similarly, the dresses that they wear in Bridgerton is not something that would have been recognizable to someone living in India then, right? But the fabric would have been recognizable. Yeah, yeah. The, 
other piece of Bridgerton is that with Kate Sharma and Anthony Bridgerton, um, love triumphs over all. Um, would that be the exception to the rule in the Regency era for their positions and times? I mean, what would it have been like for an Indian woman living in Regency England? Oh, I mean, that's the whole plot, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the whole tension of the plot. And um, I think what's intriguing about the story is that the Viscount is as invested in the obligation that he owes to his family um, as Kate is, right? They're both yes. committed to these family obligations. And I think that would resonate for a lot of people on the subject of marriage in mm -hmm. South Asia, right? That you marry um, for your family, right? That you marry to, to um, sustain your community in one way or another. Does love triumph overall? I mean, I think what's um, of the real women who actually, uh, Indian women who do end up in Britain, only for only one that I know of, does it kind of end well, right? And I, I think it depends on what you would, what one might count as end well. So one of the people I've written about in my book, Helena Bennett, begins uh, as a member of, a, of the royal family in the court in Lucknow. Uh, and she meets and marries a mercenary soldier, Benoit de Boyne, who's French, who's fighting in wars in India in the 18th century. They have two children together. And unusually for the time when he returns to England, she goes with him and they settle uh, in what is then a new part of London, Great Portland Street in a mansion near, near what will be Regency Park. It's not yet Regency Park. And within a year, Benoit de Boyne meets another woman who is a member of the French aristocracy that, that has been booted out because of the French Revolution. And so her family has set up in London. He marries this woman and they move back to France, they move back to Paris, like leaving behind Helena Bennett and the two children. Uh, Helena Bennett has enough resources, we never know how, she has enough resources to send the two children to school and to raise them. And then when they're teenagers, she sends them to, to Paris to, to see their father, right? Um, it's a fascinating story, right? She, Right, and she's lived a long time. She lived into the 1850s, so she outlives him, but she outlives her children too. And um, and she dies in a small village in, in Surrey where she's buried. So it's a super interesting story about betrayal, obviously. Uh, I think it's really interesting why she stays in the UK, why she stays in, in, in the London area. Uh, really for almost 50 years. And I wonder whether she felt she couldn't go back. I wonder what she, you know, I mean, I wonder if she was attached to being there because her children were there. Um, it's, an, it's a unique story in the sense that she doesn't have family there, nor does her partner have family there either. So it's, it's a little, you know, there's a lot of questions to be asked about that. So on the 
I mean, you asked me about love. I think it's so hard to say uh, whether that would have been possible. I do think that the tension that's represented in Bridgerton, that love might come at some cost to your social status is probably true and fair, right? Yeah. Um, I co-teach, maybe I'll just give you a little bit of an anecdote. I co-teach with my colleague, uh, Tamara Luce, a course called The Global History of Love. And one of the, it, it's a course that goes from the, you know, this period from, you know, 1500 to 1800 to the present. And we end with um, dating apps, like things like Tinder and, and so on. And, and I think everyone believes that we all marry for love or that we all partner up for love, right? And we give the students a little quiz about themselves and they, they get to pick whether they have, they are very close. So it could be a close friend, but if, if they're very close with anyone who's different than them. And of course, a hundred percent of them say, yeah, of course, I'm, I have good friends that are different than me. And then we kind of break it down and I won't tell you all the questions, but the final one is, could you imagine being intimate with someone who didn't go to college? And remember they're all in college, right? They're all in our class. They're all at Cornell. And that's where they stumble, right? And, and of course, if you, and before that we asked them, would you distinguish about class? And nobody ever says, no, I wouldn't be with somebody of my own class. But when they get to the college question, they're like, I don't know. And that's when they realize just how narrow the pool is of the people that they're willing to be intimate with, right? And so I think, I think it might be important to think about this love question about the structures within which we're allowed to be romantic, right? Within which we're allowed to express love, right? And just to take Bridgerton, which I think is very much influenced by a lot of Jane Austen novels in which the, the hero is always brooding and difficult and there has to be some obstacle that's overcome and then the true understanding is met. I think that's a cultural construction of a kind, right? Yes. In the sense that um, it's not clear to me any of us act that way anymore, right? You know, which is what makes the romance novel such a weird form. Um, now there's so a lot of withholding. There has to be, right? Yeah, I mean, but yeah. it's borderline abusive. Then not only is yes. there a lot of withholding, it's like, <laughs> right? They're kind of mean to each other for, you know, a good good bit of the season, right? Well, it's interesting what you bring up, you know, when Tequina and I talk about these things, um, the commonalities, because Kate is sporty. Yeah. Like, yeah. And she's better <laughs> at it than Anthony. She's competitive. Right? She's competitive. And I think um, Bridgerton is trying to bridge, for lack of a better word, the um, commonalities around interests yeah. as that, that's very contemporary versus, well, th that's going to triumph. That's going to lock them into this romance. And also they're emotional where they are emotionally, you know, that yeah. they yeah. have to do hide. what, <laughs> hide, hide a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good point. I mean, I think the thing that's really encouraging about the depiction of Kate is that she's very, very competitive. So she's sporty but she's also very competitive. Yes. And I think that's great, right? Showing women as being um, competitive, ambitious, right? Um, and not just with other women. 
Yeah, absolutely. But very forthright. Yeah. Um, yeah, because often the usual competition is they're competing for the same uh, love interest. Yeah. And in this, you have a woman who's, look, guy, I can, anything you can do, I can do better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I think in some ways, Edwina probably ex trumps, not sort of grows beyond them emotionally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, in this series, she she's going into into another direction where I think she's going to be pretty fabulous. She wants. Well, the she really turns <laughs> up, right at the end. She really yeah. turns up, and I, and I think that's where the you know, because remember the the mother in this, Lady Bridgerton, is also all about you know, find your truth, be true to yourself, right? Yes. And I think that's a very good it's a good maternal message, right? And I don't like to universalize what mothers would have been like, right? But that resonated for me as a mother, right? That you would want your child to be with someone who recognized them for who they are, right? right. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't see my children feeling pressure for family obligation, but I, <laughs> but I'm hard pressed. I mean, I will just say I'm hard pressed to imagine under what circumstances one would want that for your child, right? And I think what's what's good about both of the seasons, um, I mean, it happens, right? For Daphne Bridgerton, of course she marries somebody, her social equal and really good looking, right? So it's not like a huge leap, but I think in this season, what's interesting is that Viscount Bridgerton has these patriarchal responsibilities. Anthony Bridgerton has these responsibilities, which is the plot of the season that he is willing to fulfill, right? And then, and, and he almost does it, right? He almost yes. pulls it off. Um, and I think that's very unusual for a male romantic hero, right? Um, and then, I mean, he, he, he falls in love with this woman who's very headstrong, right? And is very ambitious and very clear about what, what she's gonna be good at, right? Which I think is super fascinating. I have and a question. Literally, oh, go ahead, Michelle. Oh, yeah. No, I wanted to put the question because uh, one of our listeners was aware of this conversation happening, and and they have asked that um, they want to know what you think of this. Is sort of going back to the culture and casting um, topic. What do you think of South Asian self perceptions and prejudices around color as seen in Indian cinema? and across the subcontinent and your thoughts about Bridgerton's casting of the actors playing Edwina and Kate Sharma, how, the, how are these challenges to perceptions of beauty and preferences for casting lighter skinned women in Indian cinema, including the popular Bollywood? So beyond the impact on audiences, how might this to the community have an impact with the community the, um actual folks also who are making films and and television series and casting them all of it would really make them think again right i mean i think that the bombay film industry is massive right and it has a massive audience and now with these different streaming platforms i think it has a huge reach 
right, in terms of its audience, not just in South Asia, but across across the Middle East, across um, Africa. I would hope that they would think about casting darker skinned women as as they do, you know, as the two who are cast here. Um, or the three actually also Lady Mary, and then of course, Mrs. Sheffield. Uh, I think one of the things that's, um, I, I, I have to think that the makers of Bridgerton were thinking about South Asian audiences in South Asia and that the, that Netflix in particular imagined that the audiences who subscribe to Netflix in South Asia would be watching this program. I think one of the things that all the commentators have noted is that there's a lot less sex in this season. Yes. And a lot um, less. A right? lot. <laughs> a lot less, yeah. Um, and I, I, I have to think that that was some kind of gesture to uh, family sensitivities, right? Families watch programs together and, you know, some season, some, some things might have not been so appropriate. So I, I have to think that they were thinking of those South Asian audiences. I think um, one thing we haven't talked about is the music in Bridgerton. And of course, there's all this great music set to classical music. So there's a lot of dancing in Bridgerton and there's a lot, a lot of the plot happens during those musical interludes. And in that sense, it's very resonant with Bombay films where songs and dancing are often a simulation for um, kissing or other acts, right? So I, I think one way to say it is I see a lot of echoes of Bombay films in the season, in the way that the the action is kind of structured. And then I see the casting of these two women as a talking back to the Bombay films. So it's a little bit like a dialogue, like we've made this accessible for you. And now we're going to model something we think you might do in your, in your televisual narratives. Um, I think one thing I'll just say, I, I don't watch a lot. I mean, I don't have time to watch as much TV probably <laughs> if I was gonna <laughs> yeah. make this claim in as, as a real researcher, but um, South Asian televisual narratives, especially series, they love these family dramas, right? Where there's an extended family and an extended household. And so the idea that they would go to London and stay with Lady Danbury and Lady Danbury would be their patron and the Lady Danbury and Kate's relationship is a little bit tense in the season, but then they are kind of aligned with one another, right? I feel like that's a classic um, kind of South Asian trope, right? Of the kind of large extended family. Everybody has a big house. They come live with you. There's a little bit of like older, younger generational tension, right? Um, and then it's all resolved and, and, and people kind of move forward. There's always an, a wedding at the end, right? And then people move forward in a, in a kind of uh, good way. So I think that's a really good question. I do think, I, I do think that there's a lot of lessons um, or there's a lot of, I don't know lessons, but I think there's some nudging, right? Toward mm -hmm. um, what South Asian filmmakers might wanna think about as they move forward. You've been enjoying part one of our conversation with Durba Ghosh about the second season of Bridgerton. Here's a preview from part two, our next podcast, where we continue our conversation with Professor Ghosh about the Sharma and Bridgerton families. The big pieces of the plot that's missing is we never find out where the Bridgertons make their money, 
That's right. my big question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where's the money coming from? Where's the money coming from, right? So what I'm, what I, and I think this season really dramatizes it is where does the money come from, right? But also Lady Bridgerton uh, is a kind of echo of Lady Mary. So if Lady Mary is destitute because her husband dies, Lady Bridgerton is not, right? Right, and, yeah. And, and I think we are meant to understand that it's because she has this great son who takes over the role of the patriarch, right? Um, but having said that, I think we can presume that there's some level of colonial activity that's sustaining this household. The first and second seasons of Bridgerton are available on Netflix. Bridgerton is created by Chris Van Dusen for Shondaland, a.k.a. Shonda Rhimes, and is inspired by Julia Quinn's best-selling novels set in Regency England. Visit the Michonne Boston Group's affiliate bookstore on bookshop.org for books related to this and other podcast episodes. Your purchases support independent booksellers, and a small commission supports programs like the Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters podcast. Back to you, Taquina. Dear listeners, thank you for joining this podcast. Look for Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters on Instagram and Facebook. And visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters for more information and additional resources related to this conversation. Join us again. Subscribe, like, and share the Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters podcast on your social media. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast about historical films and series dramas. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Tell us what historical dramas you're watching. Who knows? We may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who geek out on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters is brought to you by the Michonne Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michonne Boston Group, its clients or affiliates. This is Michonne Boston. And Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening.